welcome to this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the concept of potential. Now, this is a concept that's often thrown around, and especially as kids are developing, can be kids can be labeled as having more or less potential and being more or less talented. Um, and in this episode, we'll talk about some different angles and some different dimensions of this concept um, about how being labeled as having a lot of potential or being really talented might impact an athlete. Um, we'll also talk a little bit about how this fits into motivation, how might this might impact um, how motivated an athlete might be, and particularly a tennis player. Um, and we'll also talk about um, certain limits on potential um, based on different different factors, uh, such as one's environment, such as one's access, um, even genetic factors. Um, and then lastly, we'll bring this back to uh, sports psychology and how um, mental skills training can um, help athletes to reach that potential, um, regardless of where they might fall on that on that spectrum. Um, so, Brian, as as we start to think of this concept, um, how and I, I know we were talking a little bit off air about um, you know how if if an athlete's growing up and maybe that is constantly repeated at them that oh you're really talented oh you you might be going places. Um, how how could that impact um, an athlete and uh, their trajectory in the sport? That reminds me of those articles or the studies by Carol Dweck on, on the impact of certain types of praise on how – I mean, I think there a lot of her studies were more on uh, children in, in, in the classroom, but you can see it also play out in sports – uh, when we start to label someone as whether they're talented or you're a good player, very often the tendency is to try to, in a way, defend that image, to be that image. And then that can lead to behavior where you start to avoid challenging, start to avoid anything that could possibly threaten that identity or that image. So if Let's say I'm a junior tennis player and you label me as a, as a really good player and now I'm playing a challenging event where I could lose, then I might start to think more about that. I might start to avoid – maybe I don't want to play that tournament Oh, because I'm not going to be the best player here. I might lose. You know, and I've had some exposure to some players who have felt that way, especially at the beginning of their career. They just don't want to lose because of the implications that could result with their own self-esteem and, and so forth. And so I think one of the messages there for coaches and for parents, we all have great intentions when we say that. We're trying to be kind. We're trying to praise. But in terms of what we're actually praising there could harm the player's ability to pursue their potential because they're going to be shying away from the challenges of that. So instead, what should we praising? More likely, we should be praising things like their, their effort, their attitude, some of those controllable behaviors. Um, and I think the research shows that when you do have that type of 
climate around a player, that type of praise. They're much more willing to work hard on challenges to try to overcome them, even if they may be impossible at that stage of development, their ability to work toward it will be longer than, say, someone who um, feels threatened by the idea of not being able to to achieve that challenge. So um, I think if people are interested in more content on that, the work of Carol Dweck, Stanford psychologist on mindset, fixed mindset and growth mindset, really good resource on, on all of that. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that that's definitely a, uh, a book that, that our, our listeners should, should check out if, if they haven't. Um, and it, it, what, what you're bringing up actually reminds me or makes me think about um, a lot of professional tennis players that I would say fall into the same category. Maybe somebody like a Nick Kyrgios or a Benoit Paire, who's been in the news a lot recently, um, where these are players that constantly, constantly tennis journalists and fans are saying, oh, this player is so talented. This player has so much potential. If only they could figure it out mentally, or if only they'd take their training a little bit more seriously, they'd be number one in the world. Um, But perhaps there's something holding them back where they, you know, they, they want to hold on to that and they, they don't want to really lay it all out and, you know, put themselves, expose themselves to that challenge of, you know, fully going forward and maybe they don't reach that highest point. Maybe they don't become number one in the world. Um, so, and, and then I, I also think as we think about how this might connect to um, motivation um, and self-determination theory, I think as we think about these, the three um, categories or the, the three main motivating factors, um, autonomy, competence, relatedness, um, the autonomy um, and competence can definitely be impacted um, or, or motivation can definitely go down if if one is if one is motivated for the wrong reasons or if one is praised for um, for some of these things we were talking about like you know their 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 potential or their you know oh you're um, going to be number one in the world someday and sort of letting that get to their head rather than, um, as you said, thinking about their work ethic, thinking about their attitude, thinking about how seriously they're taking the sport on a daily basis. I think you, you your discussion there also reminded me about we should talk about the word talent. For example, many people will say, oh, Roger Federer is so talented. As and 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 I'm certainly not disputing that, but as if that he's got this sort of divine given talent, and that's what's made him number one or a great player, Um, and as if it's easy, (laughs) you know. And if you understand how Roger, how hard Roger Federer has trained throughout his life, it's not just talent. So. I think sometimes people look at as these players, they have like just so much more talent. Um, It's a lot of hard work that goes into being a professional athlete in any sport. And I I like, um, uh, what's her name? Um, Angela Duckworth in her discussions of grit talks about how effort counts twice. I may get this wrong, but I think she says talent plus effort equals skill. Skill plus effort equals accomplishment. 
So it's really important to not just focus just on the talent and assume everything is going to blossom. Yes, Nick Kyrgios has a lot of talent. Other players have a lot of talent. Are they putting in the right amount of effort? Are they you know, developing their skill with even more effort so that they can accomplish these great things? It's hard for us to know, but talent is only a part of the equation. It is not the, the entire equation. So I, I just wanted to bring that up because I think that that is an important thing to, to remind people of. Even when you're talking about the pros, yes, of course they're talented, but they have worked so hard to get where they are. And we should not think that it's just some sort of natural thing that that was just bestowed upon them and it, and it was easy for them. It certainly wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great point. And I think, uh, most, you know, p- people can't see that road that led them to where, to where a Federer is or where any professional pl- tennis player is thinking about the countless, you know, thousands and thousands of players that are out there trying to make a living in the sport, trying to reach the grand slams and to, um, to, to reach that, that highest level. Um, yes, that you certainly need to be physically gifted, um, and have it, you know, certain, certain aspects of the, the mental toolkit I think is, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, but you, you also, the, the work ethic and the, um, you know, the day in day out grit of the, the grind of, of improvement, that 1% incremental gains that we've talked about in many episodes needs to be there if you're going to get to the the highest level of tennis or or any sport for that matter yeah. um, i i think it's i think it's also an important discussion to um to think about talent or to think about potential and maybe what are some some of the limiting factors um just in terms of not everybody necessarily starting at that same point um i mean we we were talking a little bit that you know genetics certainly um, plays a role where, um, you know, if you look at a John Isner and a Diego Schwartzman, let's say, they each have certain genetic qualities that might help or limit their potential as a tennis player, where an Isner is, you know, has certain advantages when it comes to the serve or when it comes to playing more powerfully that a Schwartzman does not, where a Schwartzman um, is able to cover the court and, um, you know, be very quick and play great defense. And yes, these are certainly things he has um, worked on and, you know, trained and, uh, but there's also a certain um, physical difference um, that, that can limit or, um, or improve your, your potential or your talent in a, in a certain area. So that's just one, one of these factors that might limit um, or contribute to potential. I mean, I think that's a good one to bring up Josh, because, Sometimes you hear this notion that anyone can become anything that they want to uh, if they just have a strong enough desire. And I think that that's probably not true. I think you told me earlier it's probably not. Don't even include probably, but I'm just going to hedge my bets there. But I I, I feel like um, that isn't true, that um, no matter how much – Certain people want to be the best in the world at something based on their genetics as well as – I mean I think some of the other factors fact are, are come into it because it's not a, a solely one type of thing, right? So when we look at people achieving great results in a sport like tennis, 
Yes, your genetics play a factor, but so does the environment that you're in. Um, so are you in a, you know, where did you even grow up? Did you grow up in a place that had access to courts? Did you grow up in a place that had access to good coaching? Or were you, you know, was your family able to move you to a place like that? So those things certainly are play a part as well as that genetic piece. So uh, because we're not all the same when it comes to genetics, you know, when we look at the makeup of uh, your different muscle fibers, whether it's fast twitch or slow twitch, those types of things, you may be more apt to be a better rower than, say, a tennis player. So these are things that, um, you know, it doesn't mean you, you can't become a great tennis player, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is a blank slate when they're born and can become absolutely anything that they want. So we're all sort of born into different circumstances with a different set of genes, and those things just realistically play a part in what, in what happens. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, a point that you brought up about having access to good coaching. I mean, I think, uh, you know, certain certain people are fortunate to be growing up around, you know, around the sport and they have, as you said, maybe there's a club nearby um, or maybe you happen to live in a part of the country or in a country without any sort of tennis club for, you know, for hours away. Um, so it, there's a, a certain luck in terms of where you grow up or in terms of when, when you start playing the sport or when you start taking the sport more seriously, where maybe you do start, you know, you do find out about that tennis club um, and you do start training, but you start training, um, you know, multiple years later than somebody else who, uh, whose parent introduced them to the sport at the age of five, let's say. Um, so there's that, that also obviously, as we know, is going to have an impact. Um, and also what, you know, what other, um, what other sports you're doing or what other activities you're doing. And we've talked in past episodes about how playing multiple sports can, has a lot of, um, a lot of benefits in terms of your general athleticism and will, will help you as a tennis player, not, um, not, not specializing in tennis too, too early. Um, and you know, so how can, um, so, so these are some of the factors like, you know, where you grow up, if you have access to coaching and when you started to play the sport or when you had access to playing the sport for the first time, um, and what other sports you were playing and how that might impact um, your athleticism. I mean, Rafael Nadal, for instance, I know we met, reference him a lot, but he, um, his uncle was a professional soccer player. Um, he grew up playing a lot of soccer. Um, can probably see some of that in terms of his footwork and how he covers the court. I believe Djokovic's father was a ski jumper, if I'm recalling that correctly. Um, and just in terms of Djokovic's flexibility, there's probably certain qualities that carry over there. Um, so thinking about some of these factors, you, you often see um, examples at the professional level of athletes whose parents maybe played um, tennis or another sport at a high level, at a professional level, um, or, or another high level, college perhaps. Um, and how that might impact your, um, your athletic capability. Um, so I, th there really are a lot of factors um, that include 
the genetic piece, but also um, a lot of aspects of your environment. Yeah. Uh, and I think bringing up the idea of early specialization and how in general, it doesn't work out great for players. Um, we, we've discussed having a range or sampling different sports as a, as probably the best recipe because a lot of those other sports will teach you some skills just naturally as part of playing those sports, whether that be vision or footwork, um, maybe just some sort of just general sport IQ. Um, and those things can certainly benefit you when you decide to specialize in a sport like tennis. There was a famous study in the late 80s on, on Swedish professional tennis players and all of the ones who had gone on to careers in the, on the ATP tour um, played multiple sports up until they were 14 or 15 and they actually didn't spend or get really serious about their tennis until about 15 or 16. But when they did, they took it very seriously as opposed to the players in that study who had specialized early all dropped off around 16, 17 in terms of um, when they peaked. So those are just some things that to keep in mind if we're really trying to push our potential we want to be thinking about giving ourselves um, a range of experiences, sampling different things, because then when you do decide to, to specialize, you can bring a lot of that experience together and then be even better at your individual sport. Um, a good book that discusses this concept is Range by David Epstein. And um, it's not only applies in, in sport, but actually in anything, um, even one's career. So people, you know, specialize very early, knowing exactly what they want to do in college and right after, don't always do as well as maybe somebody who changed careers midway um, through their, you know, adult life and were able to then bring more experiences to their new new gig. So, um, yeah, I think it's maybe it's just a good to for all of us to try to have more of a range of different things that we do in general. Um, I think it, even as sports psych professionals, Josh, um, the more experiences that we have outside of sports psychology gives us more metaphors and analogies that we can bring. Even within, you know, working with tennis players, I'm sure you do this at times. I do. I'll use some other sports as, a, you know, an analogy that might um, resonate. I'll now. I'm not going to say like I have much experience in the kitchen. But I'll use terms like recipe and ingredients and stuff as an analogy outside of the sport that often uh, resonates with people. So you could easily use that with science, formula, and, and whatever. Um, so just kind of good to, you know, as we're trying to chase potential, let's think about um, not just specializing in what we do, but bringing a broad range of experiences into it so that um, – it can actually enrich what we do, you know, through that process. Yeah. And we've talked about, um, doubles, doubles players, how they can you know, draw up a play like football. Right. Um, and I, I, I think I, I would say another, another benefit of, uh, athletes playing to athletes and tennis players playing multiple sports growing up is you learn, you learn how to win, you learn how to lose, 
you might learn certain leadership qualities um, as, you know, maybe you're the shortstop on the baseball team or you're the, um, the point guard um, or the quarterback or, or whatever it is. Um, and you can apply those leadership qualities um, in a doubles format or when you play high school or college or USTA tennis. So sometimes maybe you might pick something up and it doesn't seem particularly relevant or applicable at the time, but down the road, those, those skills that you've built might, might actually um, carry over and, and could, could actually have benefits on the court, um, even if you weren't necessarily expecting it. And yeah, I, I definitely liked what, what you were talking about, how um, our life experiences help us as sports psychology pro- professionals, because yes, there, there's definitely more metaphors and analogies that can be made. And I think it helps us to relate to those that, um, that we work with. Um, I mean, I, I know both of us have a shared interest in, in travel. And I just know that through my own travel experiences, I find that I'm able, better able to connect to people, especially people outside the U.S., because there's almost an, an instant conversation that can take place. Um, if, you know, if it's somewhere I've been to or somewhere maybe I've even thought about going to or you know, researched, um, that can lead to that conversation. It can lead to that connection that can potentially open some other doors within the conversation. Um, and I think also, um, as we're thinking about sports psychology specifically and, um, and mental skills, mental skills coaching, um, I, I would say, and I, I know we, were, we talked about this off air, how um, sports psychology services um, can, can certainly be beneficial if, a, if an athlete is, is struggling perhaps because they're, they feel that they're not reaching their potential or they feel that something is holding them back where maybe they're training their game and they, they, you know, they, they're training the the technical aspects of their game um, and that's going well. And their, you know, their, their fitness and strength and conditioning is going well. And they're wondering why they're not, or they're, you know, they're frustrated why they're not achieving the results that they, they think that they should be achieving. And oftentimes it does have some, some sort of aspect of the mental game that can be holding them back. Maybe it's, as we talked about earlier, this sort of fear of failure or fear of really challenging oneself because they're holding on to that, um, that trophy of having, you know, potential or the ability to be great. Um, perhaps it's, it's something else or, um, when they actually are in a high pressure situation, they have a tougher time handling it. Um, or per- perhaps, yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's a whole host of, of issues, um, or, or, um, mental skills that apply in, in this arena. Um, so I, I'd say in your experiences, Brian, have you, have you worked with certain athletes that have gone through this or have, um, you know, either been told that they have more or less potential and how have you gone about working with, with some of them? What are some, some approaches that that you've taken? Yes. And it's, I mean, that's hard because, um, we have to, in a way, teach the athlete to be able to filter what they're hearing because we can't control everything that they hear. People will continue to say, hey, you're a great player or you've got so much potential. And I think the first part is, is an education around how those types of statements actually can hurt our ability to become that great player. So. You were all earlier brought up the idea of motivation 
and um, self-determination theory, specifically around autonomy and competence. So I think that that's always a good place to start. Um, and when we do that, when we start with, okay, let's try to have that goal. Like when we were talking about with everything is practice, let's have that goal of trying to become the best player that we can become. You know, and I think when we say it that way, we're also, we're, we're giving some credence to our discussion earlier about it's not everyone can become the same thing. Like how good can I become? That's what we want to, to instill in us. And so that relates back to in self-determination theory, the idea of competence. We all have this need to feel, we all have this need to be good at things. And for many of us who are, you know, listening to this, tennis happens to be one of those things that we have chosen to try to become good at, to become competent at, or to pursue mastery. And when we talk about this from a motivation perspective with this type of player who may be struggling with these concepts, it's to help them understand that, that it's not about the next win, it's not about, or, or just this next match, which you could lose. There's something else bigger on the line. And, and what's bigger on the line is actually you getting closer and closer to your potential. The, you know, the, that next match that you avoid does nothing for you in terms of becoming the best player you can be. It may protect your self-esteem on how you feel about yourself as a player, but it does nothing in terms of pursuing competence and pursuing mastery. So think that's one of the first steps I like to go through is let's try to make that as, as, as important as we can, as well as connecting tennis to some other important aspects, how it shapes our character, um, or how it could positive, positively shape our character. Um, what legacy would we like to leave in tennis? How would you like people to describe you at the end of your career? We want that to be, you know, to involve some ethical and moral behaviors, not just, oh, he was a great player, but he's a horrible human being. We want it to be, and, and so, and most people don't choose that. Most people will say, you know, I want to be seen as someone who was respectful or a great teammate, kind, generous, but tried really hard and, you know, was able to, you know, reach a high level of play. So I think those are some some things I like to start with, Josh, in, in terms of the the motivation, you know, and self determination there to help those players with that, because then you can have better discussions. Okay, when somebody says this, how should we think about that? Yes, they have great intentions, but they're not necessarily saying the right thing. So we want to make sure that, um, and this is why we had discussed everything is practice is to really help inoculate players against some of these things that are being said so that they know what their true goal is and how these other statements, these other types of praise may affect um, their psychological game with respect um, to what's being said to them. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you make a good point in terms of getting out ahead of some of these things and sort of building that, that foundation um, of the mental skills framework and of um, talking about, you know, self-determination theory and these different attributes. Um, I think also autonomy in terms of, you know, being able to make one's own choices is, yeah. is, is a, a huge piece as well. Um, and I, I think it brings us back to a conversation we've had in the past of um, not waiting, not having the 
sort of fix it approach of waiting until an athlete has reached the point where maybe they're struggling or they are um, going, you know, having issues on court of throwing their rackets or swearing or um, whatever sort of emotional um, things are going on, but not, not waiting till that point or not waiting to the point of burnout or the point of an athlete, you know, wanting to quit the sport, but uh, addressing, addressing, uh, these things from the start as a player is learning the sport um, again by you know piece by piece um, using bite-sized chunks especially if a player is younger but um, trying to build that foundation from a young age as somebody is learning the sport trying to help them you know understand um, aspects of sportsmanship or trying to help them think about why they play the sport or you know what makes it fun or making sure they're playing for the right reasons um, that it's not all about winning that we you know we, we want to we want to you know really try to get become great or whatever your particular goals are um, but just the trying to um, have some of these conversations ahead of time so that we're not sort of in this uh, fix-it mode of trying to repair um, a a disaster and and trying to fix a situation when it's already too far gone. Uh, So do you see a system, Josh, for how that can get introduced earlier? Do you you have a a sense of how how that could be accomplished? Yeah, I mean, in in my view, um, as players are learning the game and often – Oftentimes in the U.S., it's, um, I mean, it, it takes place different different places. Perhaps it's at a park. Perhaps it's at a tennis club. Perhaps it's at an academy. Um, but uh, whatever that development process looks like, oftentimes, you know, maybe a player, I, I can speak for our club at the, the Tennis Hall of Fame. We, we, we have players as young as four years old that, that play. Um, so, you know, what, what it looks like at, and red ball for four to six year olds, let's just four to seven, um, compared to, uh, you know, yellow ball, which is that highest level of, um, juniors, you know, kids starting at maybe 12 years old. Um, what that's going to look like is, is going to be different, but I think having a systemic approach at the Academy level or at the club level, even at the, the parks and rec level, where, I mean, wherever a player is playing, wherever players are, learning to develop, developing the sport, um, developing their game, I, I think it, it should be introduced. Um, and I, I would also say um, for adults, as adults are learning the sport, um, sometimes I will interact with adults who are just picking up the sport for the first time, um, or maybe they've, you know, I, I often will get the story uh, that they played 20 years ago or 25 years ago in, in high school or growing up a little bit and then they put the racket down and now they're looking to get back into it. So I think it's important as somebody is getting back into it, I'll often ask one of my first questions will be, that's, that's really, that's great. What, what, what inspired you to, to um, give it a go or what inspired you to, to come back to the sport and to, you know, to at least get them thinking about that or to at least start that conversation. Um, but to, you know, I, I think it's important to, um, whatever level a player is um, in their development to um, be trying to incorporate a lot of these mental skills um, into, into that foundation, um, into the development, because I think it'll, it will, it'll just make the process, the development process easier. There'll be hopefully fewer roadblocks along the way. Um, and when maybe when you hit some of these different roadblocks, some of these common roadblocks, like feeling like you're burned out, for instance, or losing motivation, 
you have the tools necessary and you know that, okay, this is the time to apply those tools. So I think whether it's a six-year-old that's been playing the sport for a year or it's a 50-year-old that just started playing again after a 25-year hiatus, um, the, same, the same thing applies. That if they recognize, let's just go back to that burnout example, that maybe they're, you know, they've been playing a little too much, that maybe what they need is a break or what they need is to go back to thinking about those reasons for why they play in the first place. So I think um, for regardless, it's important to have um, that, that sort of mental skills training and mental skills conversations um, along the way. And I think if we think about when players are beginning the game, coaches, parents, probably even players themselves, they look at everything as physical or technical. And I think this is where the tennis industry needs an expansion of vocabulary because I think that's what we want to be actually teaching players is a better vocabulary for training. So even a basic one could be, can you express your, how you're feeling, not as like, oh, I am nervous, and instead say something like, I'm feeling nervous, right? Teach them to disassociate the feeling from the person or the experience from the person. So I might be experiencing some struggles or I'm experiencing some failure. I am not a failure. And I think the more that we can educate parents and coaches on how to talk about the game, that not every problem is a technical one. And because I can, you know, at a certain level, I could say that the root cause of your problems are never technical. They're, they're almost always mental and emotional. And that is affecting how you hit the ball. So I think, yeah, the more that we could do that with coaches and parents and have that education, I think we could see um, players really getting to their potential um, or getting on that journey, making it smoother than it it, uh, typically is. Because as you said, normally when people approach us, it's like a car is on the side of a highway and we're AAA. Yep. And we're coming in and we're trying to help deal with something. On, on occasions, that, that doesn't happen. On occasions, you will get a player and, and, and their parents who say, we just feel like right now is the right time to start working on this mental piece. And it's, we know it's so important. Um, I wish that were the majority of the cases that came to us. Um, we end up generally training on the same things anyway. But it's, it's so nice to hear that. Um, a player and his or her parents and coaches wanted to, you know, just incorporate this right from the outset. It makes me also think about when we want to add this to a player's piece of training or player's training plan so that they can become the best they can become. It makes me think about the Jim Lair model that he has for training players. And I think he, breaks us down into four areas of training. Um, the physical area, mental, emotional, and then he calls it spiritual, but that's not a religious thing per se. It's more about purpose and motivation and character development and, and things things like that. Um, so 
I think it's really good to, to think of it that way so that we're not just training that one piece. And I think even Christina Rolo and Dave DeHaan talked about this, how they used a chair metaphor. And uh, the one thing that doesn't get trained is typically the mental piece until you got a three-legged chair. Um, I, I like to include, as, as Jim Lair does, that whether you call it spiritual or character development, whatever you want to call that, but really developing the person. So we get that good sportsmanship. Um, we get that good ethical and moral character traits or character skills that become part of of who you are, because um, that is actually a, a big part of being a great competitor. I, I think you look at today's top tennis players, they're very different than um, the ones that were out there when I was a youngster. Um, but I think how Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal and, and, and maybe to a lesser extent, Novak Djokovic, but he's still uh, a, a good role model for the most part. Um, these guys are all, they are all people you can look up to even as people. And um, that makes um, a big difference. And especially if you get into a team situation. One of my favorite studies that I've read about um, motivational climate and having to do with autonomy and mastery was about the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team. And they have this motto that says better people make better all blacks. Like, that's really cool that they don't want problematic people as a part of their organization. So it's really important to them, the character and the behavior of their players. They're not looking talent first, character second. They're looking, you know, character matters. And so, I think that may be another aspect, you know, I mean, sort of uh, when we look at the that model that Jim Lair has, probably three out of the four really come under um, what sports psychology professionals or mental performance coaches would work on anyway, right? The mental, the emotional, and, and a lot of that character development and, and, and sportsmanship piece. So, you know, maybe we're bringing it back to Josh kind of how one gets to pursue that potential within a, within a sport like tennis and, and completing the picture yeah yeah that's a great it's a great point that you have to have each of those different pieces um and often um often from from my experience from our experience it's that mental piece that's that's missing and it's maybe that realization that um after that you know tournament where the player um chokes or uh loses it emotionally or whatever it is that that's when the realization takes place that hey maybe this is the missing piece maybe this is the to bring it back to christina rollo's example maybe this is the missing chair leg why um the chair is is so wobbly um so um no i i think that's you know i I, as we think about this um this concept I, i I, I think that that the mental skills piece is can't really be understated because it, it ties into everything. It ties into your day to day on the court, how hard you're willing to train, and with what sort of intensity or focus you're able to bring to each training session. Um, what's your reason for playing in the first place? Um, are are you able to stay in the moment or to redirect your 
um, thoughts and attention back to that mo to the moment time and time again? Um, or are you lost in thought thinking about something that happened earlier in the day? Um, so I, I think it, it all really connects to the, the mental, um, to the mental game, even, even things like the physical, um, you know, your, your workouts and your strength, the strength and conditioning piece, um, having, you know, having put in the homework and putting in the due diligence, um, on the mental side will, will pay dividends in, in that regard as well. So again, as much as, as athletes are developing, um, learning some of these skills early and, developing them alongside their physical skills and technical skills um, can really set an athlete up um, for success in a more holistic way and a more sustainable way too, I would say. Yeah. I think another way we can think about potential too, is that um, the idea of that performance equation. So actual performance equals potential performance minus interference. And when we're thinking about that equation, we're, we're, Yes, we can always be looking to increase potential, but we're always looking to minimize that interference. And where does that interference typically come from? It's generally from that mental and emotional piece, maybe from the character as well. So that can just be something that people keep in mind as they are training or over the long term, because we would love for our actual performances to be really close to our potential performance. They may never get there. It's sort of like approaching perfection or in, you know, in, in math, the idea of approaching infinity. One never quite gets there. And, and that might be how we should think of potential. Um, we never quite, quite get to an, an ending point because there's always another level for us which is sort of the beauty of what we're doing here, Josh, right? Because um, it's not like, say, at age 30, oh, you know, you just per you just hit the, the potential ceiling. You're done. There's nothing left for you to to discover in, in your tennis journey. That just never happens. Um, you know, maybe at a certain age, some parts of your game are going to start declining and, you know, maybe you're um, – your performances are not going to continue to go up forever, right? That may not happen, but um, very often there are new levels to everything that we do, and there's no real top, top, top level there. So if we can be thinking about potential in that regard and trying to get ourselves as close as possible to that, and the mental training and the emotional training are, can really help you reduce that cognitive interference, reduce the distractions or the other things that are going on that are not allowing you to get as close as possible. Um, I just think that that's a great way to, to train. And you could even simply make a list. All right, what are the things that get in my way? What are the sources of interference in my own game? My guess is that you're going to discover the majority of them has something to do with your mental and emotional game. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that would be a good, um, a good, a good thing for our listeners, our listeners to do, assuming they're, they're tennis players, which I'd, I'd say most certainly are, <laughs> um, but, but to, to think, or, or 
think about the areas of interference in other other parts of your life as you're going to get work done, let's just say, um, and writing them down is a great place to start in terms of being able to limit that interference. And again, it's not, um, we're not going to be able to reach that, that perfection, that point of never being, you know, never being distracted or never having that sort of interference um, from, from uh, our game um, and, and from performing well on a daily basis, but um, going towards it and aiming, you know, aiming for, perfection or aiming for pretend potential um, is the key or one of the keys to achieving excellence or to achieving, you know, peak performance and a high level performance. Um, it's, it's referred to as peak performance, not perfect performance. Um, and right. So we want to do these things that are within our control to give us the best possible chance to reach our potential or to reach a high a high level um, on a day-to-day basis and to get a little bit better on a day-to-day basis um, in order to do that while knowing that it's it's ultimately unattainable, but it's a worthy pursuit um, in, in terms of getting us where we want to be. It reminds me of uh, Eric Buterak's TEDx talk where he talks about his own, um, the thing he learned was to, he learned to enjoy the daily struggle. Yep. And that's what it is. It is. It's not easy, and especially in a sport like tennis, there's so much that can go wrong. There's so many different distractions. It's uh, the scoring system is 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 difficult. The um, skill wise and technique wise, it is not an easy sport. It's a it's a sport in which one develops late in terms of excellence and and proficiency. Um, that in itself is a challenge with the sport. It's not like some other things where one could pick up a skill um, or, or another sport much more quickly. That doesn't really happen in tennis because of the, uh, the technique and the athleticism and even just the mental maturity required to get there. So the more that we can learn to enjoy that, that daily struggle, to enjoy the journey toward um, our pursuit of perfecting our games. I think you put it uh, nicely there, Josh. It's not something we can actually attain. Um, And certainly perfection is perhaps another topic for another episode at some point about because there do seem to be a lot of perfectionists in the game. And uh, there are certainly some good parts of perfectionism and then there's some maladaptive pieces. And I think we're trying to talk about them more beneficial aspects of that, having high standards and, and, and pursuing that. So, um, but if we can learn to enjoy that struggle, you will appreciate the things that you achieve so much more than if you hate the process. And I think a lot of this does come back to the process, Josh, is to truly chase that potential, to truly pursue that or pursue perfection in your game, the more you've got to understand the process of how to do it and then the process of performance that goes into tennis. Absolutely. Absolutely. Having a, um, a more comprehensive understanding of what that looks like, of what high performance looks like as a whole and for you. I know you've, uh, Brian, you've brought up this, this concept of recipes and, you know, what is your recipe for performing well or or for a great performance. Um, So 
when when athletes can have a better understanding of of performance itself and of themselves and how they perform well then it's going to make that whole process and again we go back to this word of process of achieving of you know reaching higher heights and of ultimately um reaching that potential or quote unquote potential um and their, their capability um it's going to make that all a lot easier it's going to be a smoother process yeah so uh, you know i was glad that you brought this up as a topic today for a potential because it, it's a it's a tricky word it um you know can one actually fulfill one's potential i think we're kind of saying no right because it's sort of that idea of pursuing perfection we don't quite get there but that doesn't mean it's not a worthy pursuit in that. Um, can anyone become anything in the world? Probably not, given a lot of other factors. Um, but again, can we, where we are today, whoever we are, can we pursue tennis or some other piece to see how close we could get to our potential in that? So what are some closing thoughts, Josh, from you? Yeah, um, I would say thinking about, um, you know, what can you do uh, each and every day just to get a little bit closer to achieving that, to achieving, you know, that, that potential, your potential in, in tennis or in your domain. Um, and I think it, it really comes back to those small habits, those, you know, those 1% incremental gains. And we've talked about how, um, and this is sort of a little bit of a math trick, but this, you know, if you do get 1% better each day, you get, I think something like 37 times better over the course of a year. Cause that 1% compounds itself each day yeah. where if you were to get 1% worse, it goes in the other direction and you have a tiny fraction of, of that. So um, just thinking about what we can, what each person can do on a daily basis, just to get a little bit better, a little bit closer to that pursuit, that, that ultimate goal. Um, and not, you know, getting ahead of ourselves, not letting the, you know, how far you have to your goal, not letting that get in your head or get in your way, but just trying to make a small little improvement each time you're on the court or each day and just get a little bit closer and noticing that being aware and, um, celebrating those small wins, um, I, I think helps that helps that become more sustainable, helps that, um, excitement or, or motivation that you feel about the process, about the improvement. It, it helps it be, you know, sustain itself for a lot longer. It, help, it means that you're more likely to, um, you know, put in the work for a long period of time to get where you want to get ultimately. And you don't get discouraged by that bad day on the court or by that slump or by that match that maybe you feel that you shouldn't have lost. Well, that's a great closing message, Josh. Thank you. And um, thank everyone for listening. That's our show for today. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback for me and Josh, uh, you can send your questions to tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so that you can be notified of new episodes. We're also putting up notifications on our Instagram account, Tennis IQ Podcast. Thanks again, and we will talk to you soon again in our next episode.